0: I uh, caught a documentary, some of you may have also caught, seems like I've been watching a lot more television during COVID. How about you? You feel like that? I caught a documentary recently called The The Weight of Gold, and it was executive produced by Michael Phelps. Michael Phelps, some of you remember, is the former Olympic swimmer with 28 medals, 23 of them gold. And in the documentary, Phelps said that after returning home from the 2012 Olympics, the emptiness of his life overwhelmed him. Here's what he said. He said, when your whole life is about building up to one race, one performance, or one event, how does that sustain everything that comes afterwards? Sure, you can chase it again, just go back to the grind for another four years, but ultimately, that doesn't sustain you. And eventually, for me at least, there was one question that hit me like a ton of bricks. Who am I outside of the swimming pool? Later in the documentary, he goes on. He said, yes, I'd, I'd won a ton of medals. I had a great career, but it doesn't matter. I wasn't happy with who I was. I thought of myself as just a swimmer and not a human being, not a person. No self-love, no self confidence now let's make sure that we're all on the same page here michael phelps is not just the most decorated olympic swimmer in history he is the most decorated olympic athlete in all of history do you understand the significance of that achievement like the modern version of the olympics was inspired by the ancient uh, olympic games in uh, held in olympia greece from 8 bc to 4AD. The modern version started in 1896. Michael Phelps is the most decorated Olympic athlete in all of history. And yet, he had no self-confidence and no sense of self. Here's the question. Why wasn't most decorated Olympic athlete in history why wasn't that enough of an identity? As identities go, that would that would seem like one that could sustain a guy for an entire lifetime. Would give you loads of self confidence, a tremendous self of, sense of self. Why wasn't it enough? Why? We're in a series that we began last week on the extremely controversial and relevant topic of identity. Who do you think you are? That's the title of the series. If you have a Bible with you this morning, I'd like for you to turn with me in it to Romans uh, chapter 8 in the New Testament, uh, Romans chapter 8. And I said this last week, and you'll hear me say it throughout this series, that when when a person becomes a disciple of Jesus Christ, you learn... That there are ideas about life that you've been taught from childhood, ideas that you've assumed are consistent with reality because you absorbed them into your mind from your parents, your teachers, your coaches, watching TV, watching movies, listening to music, whatever. But when you become a disciple of Jesus Christ, you discover that many of these ideas really are not true at all. They're really not consistent with reality at all. And one such idea that is taught in our culture is that you have the right to determine your Identity. In fact, that's how you determine identity. That's how you figure out who you are. You look inside of yourself, you find out what matters most to you, and then you make that your identity. So, for a very few select people, it might be an Olympic athlete. I'm an Olympic athlete. That's what I want to be. That's what I am. I'm an Olympic athlete. For others, it might be a straight A student. Uh, That's your identity. For others, it's a doctor, lawyer, teacher, the funny guy, uh, victim. Gay woman, transgendered person, whatever. You look inside, you, de- you determine what you want your identity to be and then you, you declare it. That's, that's, that's what I am, that's who I am. But as we saw last week, the problem is that when you try to define yourself, you always end up turning the thing or the things that you define yourself by into idols that you must have and idols always introduce pathologies and dysfunctions distortions into your life that eventually become nightmares like winning 28 Olympic medals and coming home with no sense of self no self confidence it's a nightmare here's the truth about identity identity isn't self determined Identity is received. Identity isn't self determined. Identity is received. Last week, we saw that when you become a disciple of Jesus Christ, you receive a new identity. You become a member of the family of God. You become, the way John put it, uh, the Gospel of John put it, is that you become a child of God. That's your identity. Once you become a disciple of Christ, that's your identity. Identity, That's how you're defined. It's an identity that can't be lost. It can't be forgotten. It doesn't come and go with success or failure or with the whims of other people's opinions of you. It comes with all of the value and all of the worth of Jesus Christ himself. And it is a substantive enough identity to last for eternity. Well, this week... I want you to see something else about this new identity that you receive when you believe in Christ, when you become a disciple of Christ. And it's found here in Romans chapter 8 verse 1. Romans chapter 8 verse 1. Look with me at it. Again, Romans 8 verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation uh, for those who are in Christ Jesus. Therefore, there is now no condemnation. Uh, for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now I want to I show you this morning that as a result of no condemnation. Uh, there are two benefits that come to the disciple of Jesus Christ. The first is a new freedom. And the second is a new confidence. We'll look at each of those individually. First is a new freedom. The second is a new confidence. Let's start with a new uh, freedom. Now you can't see it in the English language here in Romans 8.1. But this idea that there is no condemnation. Uh, for the disciple of Jesus, is stated as emphatically as it can possibly be stated according to the rules of Greek grammar. Now, in Greek grammar, moving a word or a phrase out of its natural order to the beginning of the sentence gives it emphasis. And that's what's happened here in Romans 8.1. The first three words of the verse in Greek are actually no now condemnation. Like that's that's the emphasis. No, now condemnation. Those first three words. Okay, it's giving it as much emphasis as it possibly can. The equivalent, uh, the equivalent sense. And let's say let's say you sent a, a text to someone. The the equivalent sense in a text today would be to put it in all caps, put a red one hundred emoji out beside it, give it a dozen exclamation points. That's the force of this. No, now condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The Greek word translated condemnation is the is the word katakrima. It's a legal word. And, it, and, it, and it's actually very simple. Kata means against. Krima means judgment. So it's a judgment against. It's a guilty verdict, making the defendant liable to punishment. To say that there is no now condemnation means that you've been freed from that. You've been freed from guilt. You no longer stand condemned. The punishment that you deserve has been taken away. God has forgiven you. He has pardoned you of all your sins, past, present, and future. That's the freedom, you see. That's the freedom. You can live free of the fear of condemnation, of the guilt that's associated with that, free of the half-ton anvil of guilt that you drag around with you every day that that weighs you down, uh, that keeps your neck bowed to the ground, keeps you exhausted from trying to live up to something that you will never live up to. You keep trying, but you just never measure up. Okay, that's the new freedom. You've been freed from all of that, freed from all of that pressure, all of that guilt, no now, condemnation if you 're a disciple of Jesus Christ but but the, the, the problem for many of us this morning here in this room watching, listening online is that this isn 't news to you like it 's not new news to you romans Romans eight one In fact, it might feel like fake news to you because you've, you you 've heard it before. You've heard its promises before. Maybe even have this verse stuck on your refrigerator or maybe on your bathroom mirror to to remind you. Maybe you carry it around in your phone and your reminders you look at every day. It's not new news. Maybe feels like fake news because you really haven't ever been able to move it into the level of your day-to-day experience. Like you've never been able to really make it work You still Even though you've memorized it Even though you've seen it Even though you know it You still live with this Constant sense of guilt And not measuring up Maybe Like maybe there was a moment Long ago When you first believed in Christ That you felt free Of your guilt Like the news of Christ's death on the cross and his forgiveness of your sin, maybe, maybe way back when it hit you like a tidal wave and it washed over you and it took all of your sins with it and, and all of the guilt, you felt free of the guilt that you've lived with for the first time in your life. But then, see, then here's what often happens. As the days and the months and the years and the decades of your life go by, it dawned on you, that all of the old patterns of behavior and thinking that used to be characteristic of you before you met Christ, before you believed in Christ, they're still there in some way, shape, or form. Like the laziness, let's say, or the lust, the control freak that was in you all those years ago. It's still there, man. It still raises its ugly head. The critical nature, the temper... The addiction, the bitterness, the tendency to play the victim. Oh, you love playing that. You always did. You still do sometimes. The whininess, whatever. They're all still there. And you battle them, and you want perhaps very badly to be rid of them, but they they still plague you. And so whatever sense of freedom from condemnation you may have felt once back in the day... That's all long since disappeared. You live now with a perpetual sense of moving in and out of condemnation and guilt. You sin, you feel guilty, you ask forgiveness, you move out of feeling condemned, and you feel great. But then you go out and you do the same thing all over again, and you feel guilty again, and then you ask forgiveness, and you're not condemned, and then you sin again, and you feel guilty again, and the cycle just keeps repeating itself. That's where many, many Christians I know live. And that's why Romans 8.1 feels like fake news to so many of you. Like you've never been able to get it from the pages of the Bible into your own personal experience. And yet, here it is. No now condemnation, Paul says, for those who are in Christ Jesus. See, here's what I think happens with most of us. I, I think this is what happens, especially, especially to those of you who have, who, who really struggle with guilt on a regular basis. Here's what, here's what I think happens. I think if you were honest with yourself, there's a, there's a voice in your head that questions the moral rightness of Romans 8, one. And I think, in other words, so, something in you says, look, I'm not free of guilt. Like, I'm, I'm still, a, I, I keep sinning in, in all of these familiar old patterns, and it's just not right for me. It's not right to be free of condemnation, it's not right to be free of guilt. I should feel guilty. It's not right. And in fact, if I don't feel guilty, I really, I really won't get any more, uh, I, I won't improve in holiness. I won't grow in spirituality. If I don't feel guilt, guilt, you see, like, like it's right in your mind for you to feel guilty. But look back up into chapter 7 for a moment. Because you're not alone in that tension, okay? Pick it up at verse 21. R- Romans chapter 7, pick it up at, uh, at verse 21. Uh, 21. The Apostle Paul is writing and he's writing of his own experience. And see if you can identify with this. He says, So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. In other words, I want to do it. I'm, I'm like, I'm down with his law. I agree. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. Can you identify with that? You identify with that? Can you? I I (laughs) I certainly can. What I want to do, what I know I should do, what I really believe is true, what I really believe is right. It's often so very different from what I actually end up doing. Watch verse 24. The tension, the tension of this gets to Paul. Verse 24. He says, What a wretched man that I am. That's it. That's it, right? Like that's 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 the feeling of never measuring up. You live with this constant tension between what I want to do, between I want to do what is right, but I so often don't. What a wretched man I am. He says, I'm a terrible, what a terrible woman I am. What a what a terrible Christian I am. And Paul cries out in verse 24, he cries out the cry of desperation that anyone who struggles with guilt knows. He cries out and he says, who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Have you ever asked that question? You ever wondered that? How how am I ever going to change? Who's going to, am I ever going to be free of this? Who's going to rescue me from my guilt? But here's where Paul takes a different turn. I want you to see this. Instead of of letting that question... See, this is what I think happens to many of us. Instead of letting that question drive him into a bottomless pit of Nutella, trying to eat his way out of his guilt-induced misery... Paul reminds himself of the gospel of Christ. He answers his own rhetorical question by this, Romans 8, verse 24. He says, thanks be to God who delivers me through Christ Jesus our Lord. So he's reminding himself of the gospel. Now look, this is, this is powerful stuff. Because what I'm telling you, those of you who wrestle with guilt, who feel like, well, it's, it's, not, it's not, you know, I, I should feel guilt. Because I'm not what I ought to be. You understand, the Bible gets the tension that you feel between what you ought to be and the reality of who you really are. The Bible gets that way more than you think the Bible gets that. See, I think most of us are really familiar, excuse me, are really most comfortable with black and white thinking. You are a Christian, you're not a Christian. You are a Christian, you don't sin. You're not a Christian, you do sin. I think that's how most of us think. The Bible thinks actually much more uh, nuanced about people. It understands the complexity of human beings. Yes, you're a Christian. Yes, you have believed in Christ. Yes, you still sin. That's how the Bible thinks of you, right? I'm telling you that this new freedom from guilt and condemnation will never reach the level of your experience if you don't understand the basis of for how you've been freed from condemnation and the way that you do that is you have to look at what follows Romans 8 1 Romans 8 1 now no no now condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus but watch what follows okay because you have to know that all of this stuff about no condemnation no being freed from guilt it isn't just wishful thinking It's not about what would just be really wonderful if that could be true, but that can't possibly be true. It's not that. It's actually all explained in the next verses very objectively, forensically. And this new freedom from condemnation, you need to understand, hear me on this, this new freedom from condemnation is rooted not in you or your discipline or your behavior, but in the person of Jesus. Look at verse 2 no now condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus see none of this can be true apart from him because through Christ Jesus the law of the spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death now I'll explain that in just a moment for what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh now just stop there for just a moment okay I'm going to explain all of this here's what he's saying and this is so important, so, so, so stick with me. Stick with me here. Uh, what Jesus does for people who've believed in him is that he brings you out from underneath the law that hangs over your head and that condemns you. Paul calls it, Paul calls it the law of, of sin and death. And what he's talking about, when he talks about the law of sin and death, is he's talking about the commandments. Uh, like the, 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 the law of Moses, the, the Ten Commandments and, and, and like in the law of Moses, okay? Right? In the Old Testament. He says, he says that hangs over you. It's, it, it, it's like, he calls it the law of sin and death, okay? And here's why he says that. Because if you come to the Ten Commandments with any sense of honesty, you, you will find that they're crushing. Like the Ten Commandments are crushing, even if you just take the ones that have to do with how you treat one another, uh, it gets embarrassing. Uh, it gets more embarrassing with each one that you read, doesn't it? So, for instance, no murder, no murder. Sure, I mean, like, you you, you know, you, you would say, well, I haven't technically murdered another person, but you've wanted to. Like, you know you've wanted to. Like your boss, your mother-in-law, uh, you know, somebody that you work with. I mean, you've wanted to murder someone. You haven't. But you've wanted to. See, the Ten Commandments is showing that, saying no murder. Not just no physical murder, but murder in your heart, in your mind. You've been, uh, no adultery, uh, the Ten Commandments said. Well, Jesus said that commandment isn't just about actually committing physically, uh, physical adultery, but it's about lusting for someone. You're guilty, you see. No stealing, no lying, no coveting. Any self-honesty at all says, I've done all of those things. And the law is, you see, it's just crushing because it shows you that you're not as good as you think you are or that you would like to be, like you'd like to believe that you are. I mean, when anybody says to me, you know, maybe you're talking, maybe I'm talking to somebody about Christianity, and they say, well, you know what, I'm I'm a good person. I'm like, seriously? Have you read the law? And of course, they haven't. I don't say that out loud to them, but I'm thinking it inside of myself. I'm thinking it in my head. You're not the good person you think you are. I promise you. Okay? The law is crushing. It shows you exactly, precisely what's wrong with you. Ladies, ladies, do you know what the law is like? Here's what it's like. Uh, It's like trying on a swimming suit in a dressing room with harsh fluorescent lighting. That's terrifying, isn't it? That's terrifying, isn't it? Right? Because no one looks good in that light. Well, that's what the, the the law doesn't flatter you. It reveals every hideous flaw in your heart. That's why Paul calls it the law of sin and death. Like trying on a swimming suit in a dressing room with harsh fluorescent light, well, that feels like death, doesn't it? That's what Paul is saying about the law. But notice what verse 3 says. Notice what verse 3 says. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did. And you remember what I said just a moment ago. This freedom from condemnation, this freedom from guilt, that you feel like it doesn't seem morally right, I feel like I should feel guilt. Like if I've I've done, I should live with guilt. You have to understand that what Paul is saying here, what Romans is saying, is that freedom from guilt isn't anything about you. It's not about what you've done or haven't done. It's not about your goodness. It's about, notice, what God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the requirement of the law might be fully met in us. Here's what he's saying He's saying that this new freedom that you have from condemnation is all rooted in the person of Jesus. It's not wishful thinking, it's, it's not cheap grace, this, this freedom. A terrible price has been paid for your freedom from condemnation. Christ was made an offering for your sin. And as a result, you've been freed from having to measure up to the standards of the law that condemns you. You're the same person that you were in some ways. Like outwardly, you look like the same person. Same stuff you struggle with. But you're free from the condemnation of that. Now, I'm told... Actually, I read an article from the Los Angeles Times a few years ago about a hotel in downtown LA. It's called the Cecil Hotel. I believe that's how it's pronounced, the Cecil Hotel. Uh, For years and years and years, it was apparently a den of drugs and and prostitution until a new owner bought the building and did a major renovation on it. From the outside, it was the same old building, but it was under new management, right? Right? That's what Paul is saying about us. We look the same on the outside, many of the same struggles and sin patterns, but we're under new management now that gives us freedom from condemnation. And this freedom we have is rooted in something God did, not something we do, not something we will do, not something we did, but it's based in what God did by sending his son, Jesus Christ, to pay for your sins. And so this moral rightness, this sense that you have that it's not morally right for you to feel free of guilt, you're wrong. It is absolutely morally right for you to feel free of guilt because God sent his son Jesus Christ to die so that you could feel free of guilt. And so now when you live and you live in guilt, you are actually doing the wrong thing. You are the one that is morally unright. Do you see that? You're saying that Christ's death on the cross wasn't worth, wasn't substantial enough to pay for your sin. Now, please understand, those of you who struggle with guilt, this, this should actually be encouraging to you. Because Paul isn't offering cheap grace here. There's no winking at your sin. There's no denying here that you're deserving of condemnation. There's no sweeping your sin under the carpet. There's no pretending like it's not there. Paul isn't saying that there isn't anything wrong with believers in Christ, that they've achieved perfection as people. He's not saying that at all. He's saying that Christ's death on the cross means that all of the requirements of the law have been fully met in you. God did something that can't be changed, that is set in history on the cross and outside the city walls of Jerusalem, my sins, your sins, and the sins of all of those in Christ Jesus have been paid for, fully met. Look at the last part of verse four. By the way, is it hot in here to anybody else or is it just me? It's hot to you guys? Okay. We can tell somebody next week not to make it so hot in here. Like, I know I'm working, and when I'm working hard and it's hot in here, you guys are sleeping, and then that really bothers me, so let's crank up the cold, all right? I'm sweating, you're sleeping. Okay, look at the last part of verse 4. He says, In order that the requirement of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, again, for those of you who worry that living in freedom from guilt that God has provided for you, those of you who worry that that will make you complacent, notice that this passage isn't written to people who are fine with just sitting in their sin and saying, eh, no big deal, I'll just keep sinning. Those are people who live according to the flesh, as Paul puts it. Paul's writing to people who live by the Spirit. You see, there's no complacency about freedom from condemnation. Just because you're free from condemnation doesn't mean that you're complacent. It doesn't mean that you are complacent does not mean that you do not care. The promise of no no condemnation is for those that are called to spirit-led, holy living. And verses 5 through 13 spell that out very clearly. And there's no uncertainty here about no condemnation. It's grounded in what God did. I might look at how black my sin is. Like I might look at my sin and go, oh my goodness, look at how black it is. But he points to the cross and the requirements of the law fully met. And so one of the benefits of this new identity that you're given is that you've been given a new freedom. You're freed from having to live under the crushing pressure of guilt and condemnation. And that's a freedom that you should enjoy. It's a freedom that you should move out in, knowing that every single thing that you do that's wrong, you don't have to pay the price for that over and over again. You don't have to live with guilt. Why? Because one price has been paid for everyone, and it was paid back in history a couple thousand years ago on a Roman cross. You'll never pay a price bigger. You'll never, never pay a price bigger. You know how sometimes, uh, like, some, those of you who struggle with the bill, you, you'll think to yourself, you know what, I, I did something wrong, and now God is going to punish me. What's he going to punish you with? Think about it. What's he going to punish you with? What's the worst thing that you can think about? What's the worst thing you can, you know, i tell you something that happened to me one time. I had done something, I, like, like, I had done something that I knew was wrong, and later in the day I had a flat tire, and I said, well, that's it. God's punished me. Like a flat tire is worth is the equivalent of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Seriously? See, nothing that you can think of, nothing that you can think of that God would punish you with is equivalent to what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Nothing. That was the worst punishment that could ever be meted out on a human being. And so there's no more punishment necessary. It's all been carried out in Christ. Freedom from condemnation. That's part of this new identity that you've been given. Child of God. Other benefit that I want to shift our attention to now is this. Is that no condemnation also gives you a new confidence. A new confidence. And again, I know that many of you know this idea that Paul expresses in, here in chapter 8 verse 1. That there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But the battle for most of us, right? The battle for most of us. Regarding this new identity is keeping this confidence of our freedom in our bloodstream, so to speak. Like when we face the rough and tumbles, the realities of everyday living. Like, like let, me, let me give you some examples of realities that tend to, that tend to remove this sense of, new, uh, of freedom that we have. This new confidence that we have in Christ. Like one is the reality of your sin. That's what we've been talking about. Like you know that you're sinful and you're like, well, see, it can't be true. Well, the reality, the great encouragement of this chapter is that it doesn't deny the reality of my sin. I'm still a sinner. But sometimes we imagine that our sin undermines our standing. The reality of sin saps our confidence, you see. But it doesn't have to. Another another thing is the reality of our distorted views of God. Our understanding of God is faulty and it can be dominant. For some people, God and guilt are inextricably linked. God's the inspector recording my every error. He's the policeman that's there to punish me. And it's very hard to hear and it's very hard for some of us to believe that there is no condemnation because of our distorted views of God, our sin, our distorted views of God. Here's another. The reality of the accuser, you know you have an accuser, right? Satan is the enemy who will do anything to obscure the Christian's identity, to diminish your confidence. He's called the father of lies and he specializes in half-truths. He's, he's labeled the accuser and he will accuse us to God, but he also accuses us to ourselves. He loves to, he specializes in taking a sin, real or imagined, it doesn't really matter to him whether it's real or imagined. And then he whispers in his ear, in our ears and here's what he says. And I'll bet you so many people here know it. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but I'll bet you almost everybody here knows who knows this whisper. You've heard this whisper. Here's how it goes. And I thought you were meant to be a Christian. Have you heard that one? I thought you were a Christian. See, that's the accuser. And yet in the face of all of those realities, the reality of your sin, the reality of your distorted views of God, the reality of the accuser, God still says to his children, no now condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's a new confidence that you can walk with, and every time that goes off, I think the rapture is happening. Does it, do you think that? It's like I feel like we're going up in a ship, and here we go. Now, what I want you to do, I want, I want to watch you. I want you to watch, uh, watch Paul battle these competing voices of the reality of our sin and, and, and the reality of our distorted views of God and the reality of the accuser. I want you to watch him now as we end this, this, this chapter in these verses. I want you to watch how he does this. Pick it up again at verse 31. Skip on down to verse 31. And you're going to see that Paul does this. He asks a whole bunch of rhetorical questions right in a row. He says, what then shall we say in response to these things if God is for us who can be against us? Okay, see, here's the confidence. God is for us. See, I have to face my misunderstandings, this, this idea that, that, the, of the God who's out to get me and, and those kinds of feelings. I have to face that with what God did. I have to meet it with what God did. The cross is a constant reminder. It's a permanent evidence that we have a God who is for us. Do you need rem- reminded of that? Do you need a reminder of that on a regular basis? Yes, you do need reminded of that. There is a God who is for you. Verse 32. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, uh, gave himself up for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things. God has so much invested in you already. Can you see that? Can you understand that? Our rescue was so costly to him that price has already been paid. Of course he will make sure, of course he will make sure that his investment is protected. His children are given their full inheritance. Verse 33, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? And the answer is not no one, by the way. The answer is not no one. Uh, The book of Revelation tells us that Satan is the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night, but he can accuse away 24-7. It's a waste of his breath. Look at how verse 33 goes on. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen, here's what it says, it is God who justifies. In other words, God has ensured the requirements of the law have been fully met, and so he can declare us not guilty, fully righteous. There's, a, there's an old hymn. I'll bet most of you probably don't know this hymn, but its title is, here's the title, What Though the Accuser Roar. I don't know, anybody familiar with that hymn? Probably not. Here it is. It goes like this. It's called, What Though the Accuser Roar? And one of the stanzas goes like this. You thought I was going to sing. I'm not going to sing. Here's how it goes, though. Here's how it goes. Well, may the accuser roar of evils I have done. I know them all and thousands more. Jehovah knoweth none. Jehovah knoweth none none. I, I can tell you about all of them. The accuser roars about all. Of them. I, thought you were, I thought you were a Christian. A Christian wouldn't do Well may the accuser roar. Of evils I have done, I know them all, and thousands more. Jehovah knoweth none. So then verse 34, what the, who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died more than that, who was raised to life is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. You see, we're in the throne room, the courtroom of heaven. And the devil accuses and, and, and the Christ intercedes and Satan points the finger at us and, and the Savior speaks up for us. And as the charge is listed and the sin is mentioned, the son says, Father, Father, those, 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 sins, those sins are paid. I, I died for him. I died for that sin. The, the price is fully met. I, I died for her. See, no one No one condemns. So verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And the answer, if you read on, is no one and nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. There's a new freedom that you're given and a new confidence that you can walk in that freedom because all of the requirements of the law have been fully met in you, even though the Bible understands you ain't perfect. We get it. The Bible gets it. You get it. I get it. If you don't get it, I get it about you that you're not. Anybody who's married to you, anybody who knows you well knows you're not perfect. Like that's not a surprise to Anybody? The Bible has a very complex understanding of human beings. The Bible understands you're not perfect. And yet, while you're not perfect, the Bible says, if you are in Christ Jesus, no now condemnation, no now guilt. Oh, you might be guilty of doing something wrong, but you don't have to live with guilt. You're freed from that feeling of guilt. The feeling of guilt isn't going to move you any further in spirituality. You know what's going to move you further in spirituality? You know what's going to make you grow spiritually? It's not the feeling of guilt. It's the feeling of love for Jesus Christ, what he's done for you on the cross. And oh my gosh, he has freed me. He has freed me from having to live with that guilt. I want to give him everything in my life. I want to change. I want to be transformed for his sake. Guilt will never do that for you. Never. Only love only love will transform you. Now please, it's, it's, it's so important that you hear me. Otherwise, otherwise, what I'm about to say will be misunderstood, it'll cause damage. This is not a chapter written to the complacent Christian. You get it? There's not a chapter written to those who will just sort of shrug their shoulders at their sin and continue in it as if it doesn't matter. That's not who this was written for. This is written for those so busy biting their fingernails at fear of the consequences of their sin that they can't enjoy being who they are a child of God, freed from condemnation. They've lost the confidence of a child of God that's who this is written to to them he says with every question and answer here and it's vital that the right people listen, are listening to those people he says get your sin in perspective do you really imagine that your sin can trump the cross I should have worded that differently shouldn't I <laughs> Do you really believe that your sin can overcome what Christ did on the cross? Do you really think your wrongdoing can undo its rescue? Do you really think your dark secrets break God's promise? You see, it's to the Christian racked with the tensions of fighting sin that God speaks to remind us of our identity, to assure us of its benefits, the new freedom It guarantees us our confidence. There is now no condemnation. No now condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's a truth that you must preach to yourself over and over if it is to reach into the depths of your heart, knowing and believing that it's not just wishful thinking, but that it is accomplished through the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. One application for you here. If you understood this if you understood this that you are free of guilt that you're free of having to live under condemnation think about this this afternoon how would it change the way that you receive criticism at work in your friendships, in your marriage, if you understood that you're no longer under condemnation, that God understands perfectly well that you're not perfect, how would it change the way that you receive criticism? I'm not going to give you an answer to that. I'm going to let you think about it this week, all right? Bow your heads with me and let's pray. These truths boggle the mind, Lord. uh, They're greater than we can possibly uh, believe on our own. We need the Spirit of God to drive these truths home. Uh, I can't communicate them clearly enough that we'll ever make these things real to people, especially people who live with uh, perhaps an incredible sense of guilt. Lord, I pray that you would do what I cannot do, drive these truths home, free people this morning, those who know Christ Jesus, free them from the sense of constant condemnation that they live under, that bows their neck, that feels like a a half-ton anvil of weight on their back that they carry around all of the time, that robs their joy and that, that just saps their peace. Lord, would you please free them from that with these truths today, letting them understand that this idea that there is no condemnation now, for those who are in Christ Jesus, has nothing to do with them and their behavior, their goodness or their badness, but it has everything to do with what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Lord Jesus, would you please drive that home through the power of your Spirit, and would you free us and transform us as people? Lord, for those who are here today that have never understood this truth, number one, that they're a sinner. Maybe they've never wanted to face that truth before. Like they just leave it at a very superficial level. Maybe they would say, yeah, 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 you know, I'm not perfect. But Lord, maybe they've never ever taken it deeply and looked at exactly how imperfect they are. And they've never understood that Christ paid for their sins. Pray that today that truth would become very clear to them. That your spirit would make that very clear to them. Take it deep into their hearts. And Lord, I pray that today would be a day that they would respond to that truth by acknowledging that they're a sinner, but by trusting in what Jesus Christ did on the cross for their sins. That through his death on the cross, their sins are forgiven. And that they can be made new and given this new identity as a child of God, free of condemnation, which is so different than what most people think of Christianity. Or we confess that often we are the people who are guilty of creating in the world outside of the cross we create this sense that Christianity is a joyless thing because of the fact that we live under so much condemnation that we don't have to live under would you change that in us make us a free people and it's in your name Lord Jesus Christ that we worship and pray